so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC podcast. Today we'll be hearing from Mike Gakey. Shiny, well-scrubbed, secret-bearing Christianity will never foster anything except more secrets. Healing community is vulnerable. It is real. It is honest. It is not a bunch of special interest groups that hide off in corners because they're afraid for the rest of the church to see them. We need to all be in this together. Healing community is messy, but I promise you it is also life-giving and life-enhancing. Twenty fifteen brought about major changes in the US. In the fall, the ERLC hosted an event right after the Supreme Court issued its sweeping ruling about same sex marriage. Mike Gakey, a pastor in San Francisco, used his own experience to address the topic Practical Steps for Same Sex Attraction Ministry in the Church. Good evening. Good to be with you guys. My name is Mike Gakey. I'm from San Francisco. Proud to say the birthplace of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. <laughs> but I grew up here in Austin, so it's good to be home. I have an affinity for weird places, and it's, not, it's great to be back in this one. As I was thinking about this topic for today and, and what, what I wanted to share, my mind went back to a story that was the impetus really for me ever sharing my story and deciding to get into this area of ministry. And I think it has a lot to do with what I want to share with you tonight. It was about 16 years ago, and I was on a run on my lunch hour. And at this point in my journey, it had been about two years since my wife Stephanie and I had reconciled. I had come home, and we had begun this just crazy, life-changing journey of forgiveness and, and restoration and identity and love and discipleship. And I was running and I was really just contemplating really with gratitude what God had done in my life. And as I was running, this image popped into my head. And it was the image of a young man that we had come into contact with um, during our separation, which was in another town called Lubbock. I had moved us there right before I left Stephanie to, for me to go back to school. And before I left her, though, we were, we were very good Baptists. We went Sunday morning and Sunday night to First Baptist Church of Lubbock. And First Baptist had this really vibrant college ministry. And there was a young man in the college ministry who I, who I noticed one day. And I noticed him because he had sort of thick glasses. And he walked um, with his head sort of raised and his eyes looking down beneath his glasses. And it, it caught my attention. And then I began to notice him faithfully there Sunday morning, Sunday night. And then I, I noticed that he, I also saw him on campus at the University Center at Texas Tech. And he was in a Christian fraternity. And he was always hanging around with lots of people, guys and girls alike. And I thought this is a popular 
kid. This guy is enjoying his college experience. Well, I did leave Stephanie to pursue my um, identity as a gay man that I felt uh, was really my my destiny. And after I did that, I started uh, visiting and attending and going to the gay establishments in Lubbock and, and one bar in particular that I went to with my friends. And one night I was at the bar with my friends and I looked out on the dance floor and here was this guy from First Baptist with the glasses. And he was dancing on the dance floor with another guy. And they were all over each other. And I, I called my friends over and I pointed him out. I told about what a good Baptist boy he was and how he went to church all the time and how he was in a Christian fraternity. And here he was on Friday night dancing at the gay bar. And we nicknamed him Baptist Boy. And when we would see Baptist Boy frequently at the bar, we would laugh and joke and point him out and, and make reference to the dual life that that kid was living. As I ran that day, I literally was just overwhelmed with emotion. And I started to cry on my run. And I had this deep, deep sense of remorse. I had never teased that kid to his face, but we had made fun of him just the same. And as I ran that day, I thought, I know the conflict that was in his heart. I know this perceived dueling between wanting to be connected with God and wanting some form of sexual or relational fulfillment. I knew the way that that kid probably felt on Sunday mornings and the way that he felt on Friday nights. I knew what was going on inside of him. And two years into my journey, I also had come to know the hope that was available to him. The hope of freedom from secrets. The hope of authenticity. The hope of a secure and a singular identity. And I also knew that in churches all over the world, there were many, many Baptist boys and Baptist girls people in those churches struggling deeply inside, deeply conflicted between their Christianity and their sexuality. And I knew as I ran that God had set apart the local church in a very special way to be a conduit of life transformation. And as I ran that day, I knew that it was time to confront the church. I had no idea at that time how hard it would be to get the church to understand its special role and even how much harder it would be to get the church to accept it. But we still today have churches full of secret strugglers. People in your church from probably seventh grade on struggling with unwanted same-sex attraction. And then in addition to the secret strugglers in your church, even today in this culture that we live in that has almost obliterated any societal hindrance to an acceptance of a gay identity, People are still being drawn to the Lord and God is drawing them to a place of conflict in their sexuality. They are being prompted as they move closer in relationship to Jesus to repentance of both their sexual sin and their idolatrous identities. Even in San Francisco where I live, which is probably the safest place in this country to be a gay person, people are coming to the church and asking for help in resolving their, their conflicting feelings and desires with what they know and believe that God has called them and desires them to be. And based on the frequent calls I get, weekly calls that I get from pastors asking for help with something going on in their church, I see more and more that people are seeking help within the church, and that is a really good thing. 
Dr. Moore talks about refugees from the sexual revolution and, and they, that they will come in the future, but they are already coming. People who have tried the freedom of sexuality and it hasn't given what, they, what it promised, or people who have come to the Lord and realize that God has something different for them. I've spent a lot of time, a lot, many, many years of my life thinking about how to equip the church to minister effectively to people who are struggling with unwanted same-sex attraction, people who are in conflict with their sexuality. And as I have thought and as I have strategized, I always end up at the same answer that feels very simplistic, but has constantly, as I've studied God's word, as I have thought this out, has been confirmed in my head and in my mind. And as I've felt it and thought it and, and, and tried to imagine how to make it work better, it's been confirmed in my heart. And as I've talked to people who the Lord has worked amazingly in their lives, it's been confirmed through those testimonies. And that, that answer for the church is this. It's not in special programs. It's not in special ministries to help people with all these various unique problems. The answer for the church is very simply to be the church. The changes that happened in my life did not happen in a a place of ministry that was focused on people struggling with same-sex attraction. Um, I didn't hang out in a support group. I didn't go through some form of reparative therapy or really any sort of specialized therapy. Primarily, I walked out of an old identity and into a new identity in the community of the local church. For those of us who do struggle with unwanted same-sex attractions, many of us find that, that the answer is not what we thought it was. The answer is not so much in the change of our sexual attractions. It's not so much in the change of our sexual feelings. It's not so much in the change of our orientation. The answer for, for all of us is simply to become a disciple of Jesus. We have to be careful, though, because we, we often equate looking like a disciple of Jesus with being a disciple of Jesus. It's that place at your deep inner core where your life, all of it, is surrendered. And you begin to walk in that journey of connection with Jesus, with all of its wonderful challenges and joys. This is what every church, whether a small church or a big church, large staff or small staff, contemporary or traditional, every church has this to offer to all sinners, to all strugglers, and all broken people. It is never practical to do ministry to people struggling with same-sex attraction. It's really never practical to do lots of kinds of ministries. We don't do ministries because they're practical. And the minute we get into too too much practicality, we get over-programmed and we set ourselves up for failure. But I do think that there are some basic fundamental characteristics of a church that is a safe place for someone who is surrendering and struggling with their sexuality. And the first one is this, the church must teach the truth. We heard that from Dr. Moore just a minute ago. I want to challenge the church to lose this trend of highly nuanced language where we're so careful that to not offend someone that we end up not saying anything at all. In San Francisco, the small group of evangelical pastors that exist in our city have come to realize we can't be nuanced anymore. We need to boldly speak the clear truth, the whole truth of God's word about sexuality and about everything else from Genesis to Revelation. We can't hide behind that because no one is being helped by our nuanced language. 
During the time that Stephanie and I were separated, I attended several gay-affirming churches. The the sort of pro-gay theology is what gave me the impetus to leave her. So I found that in some churches, but I saw early on in my exploration of these churches that they tended to focus, they, they they did pull out the Bible, but they tended to focus only on what I would consider the soft parts of God and his word. It was as if his mercy was good, so we're going to talk about that, but his wrath is bad, so we're going to ignore that. They preached essentially a lesser God, a partial God. But sinners, no matter the sin, do not need a lesser God. God is not one-dimensional. For each of us, no matter which parts of his characteristics are more naturally appealing to us, and of course all of us have things we like more about him than others, but no matter what parts are more naturally appealing to us, he is multi-dimensional, and all of his parts inform all of the rest of his parts. His wrath helps to inform his mercy, and his righteousness helps to inform his grace, and his holiness helps to inform his forgiveness. And if we dismantle the fullness of his, of his character, we will create a God in our image. And if we avoid the hard parts, we will fracture the secure foundation of God's word and it will ultimately collapse. A lesser God, a God in our image is a powerless God that will never deliver on the promises that man makes on his behalf. All of the truth, the whole of God's word is what leads us to Jesus. And when we are led to Jesus, that's where we find our healing because it's in Jesus that we find our true identity not an identity that's placed on stereotype, not based on tradition, not based on feelings, but an identity that is based on who God's word says that we are and who God's word says that he is and what God's word says that he has promised us. Nuance will get you nowhere. Don't fear the hard parts. All of God's word is useful for teaching and training and correction and reproof. Teach the truth. The people struggling in your church are hungry for it. But if we're going to teach the truth, we need to make sure that we understand the struggle. Truth is vital, but truth cannot be taught in a vacuum. God's truth is designed to illuminate our experience, to shine light on our experience. And if we want to be a church that helps those struggling with same-sex attraction, we need to be a church that understands same-sex attraction and that listens to the experiences of those who struggle with it. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. That word merciful means the the ability to be able to get into someone else's skin to the point where we see things like they see them, or where we feel things like they feel them. If we are not willing to take those steps to understand people who struggle with same-sex attraction, we will first of all, be no help to them. But second of all, we as a church will develop a mindset that same-sex attraction or homosexuality is simply a behavior to be modified. And if we see homosexuality as just a behavior to be modified, we will not help people. I used to say that you could gouge my eyes out and chop my hands off and lock me into a closet for the rest of my life and I might never act out sexually again, but I would be no better off in my heart than I was before you put me in there. But if we make efforts to understand people, it allows people to put their struggles out into the open. And when their struggles are out into the open, 
Scripture can clearly illuminate what they are dealing with. When Scripture illuminates our struggles, when our struggles are exposed, when they are put out into the open and, and, and Scripture shines its beautiful light on them, they lose their power in people's lives. They may not disappear, but they lose their power. If you want to minister to those struggling with same-sex attraction, invest in educating your people and listening to those who have struggled. The other thing that our churches need if we are going to be a part of the solution is we need to foster real community. In my years in ministry, I've discovered what I, what I think to be a truth. It's not scientific. But the thing that causes most people to throw in the towel and go back into homosexuality is loneliness. When, when a gay person walks away from their entire world, when they walk away from, from their, their sexual identity and, and possibly their, their whole identity, when they walk away from their community to pursue Jesus, they often find no one in the church to walk alongside them. Shiny, well-scrubbed, secret-bearing Christianity will never foster anything except more secrets. We need to pull community out of a list of programs and graft it into the DNA of our church. Healing community is vulnerable. It is real. It is honest. It is integrated. It is not a bunch of little special interest groups that hide off in corners because they're afraid for the rest of the church to see them. We need to all be in this together. Healing community is messy and it is uncomfortable and it is inconvenient, but I promise you it is also life-giving and life-enhancing and life-affirming and life-changing and it is mutual. If you foster this sort of community, I promise you, you will learn as much from the people you are ministering to as they are learning and growing from you. Foster real community in your church. The church simply should be all sorts of people walking together towards Jesus. And this last one is one you don't hear about very often, but I think it is so important in our churches. If we are going to be a church that, that is speaking into the lives of people struggling with unwanted same-sex attraction, we must provide opportunities to serve. I once led a workshop at a conference for people struggling with same-sex attraction, and I entitled my workshop Healing Service. And the premise of the workshop was that serving others helps us heal because it pulls our eyes off of ourselves. It exposes us to the issues and the struggles of other people. It helps us see that we all have stuff that we're dealing with. I don't think I had but maybe five people show up at my, comp my workshop. And I think the ones that showed up hadn't read the description. I think they were expecting a healing service. Some sort of spiritual um, hocus pocus that would zap their same-sex attraction away. No one really wanted to talk about serving others. They wanted more to be served and to be helped. But I remain convinced that serving is vital for us in gaining insight into our own struggles. And it's vital for us in growing. And it's vital for us in connecting. And it's vital for us in finding hope and healing. The truth is that many people who struggle with same-sex attraction can be slightly self-absorbed. I speak from very personal experience. If my wife was here, she would be nodding vigorously. But they also so often struggle with such guilt and such shame and such a sense that they don't have a place in the church. And the church needs them. It needs their compassion. It needs their creativity. It needs their intellect. It needs their giftings. The church needs them to play their part like it needs everybody to play 
their part. People struggling with same-sex attraction in your church don't need to be coddled. They need to be included. When Stephanie and I were early in our process and we were going to this kind of very traditional Baptist church and we had one role of service in those early days because it was really all we could handle, but we wrote notes, old-fashioned, on paper notes to people who had we hadn't seen in a while in our class or who we were praying for. And that hour and a half each week that Stephanie and I sat at our kitchen table and wrote notes and prayed for people was vital because at that time in our journey, it was the only hour and a half a week that we and all of our problems were not the center of our universe. And it pulled our eyes off of ourselves. It began to give us grace and compassion for others. As I wrap this up, I think the thing that you need to understand is that if a church is going to effectively minister to those struggling with unwanted same-sex attraction, the primary face of the church must be fully and vocally supportive. My former boss and pastor and great friend who's here tonight, Patrick Payton, he always said this, ministry in this realm has to be top down. If you are going to be a church that helps people like this, it begins in the pulpit. It begins with the pastor's teaching, his sensitivities to the realities of life in this time and place and culture, his graciousness, his love, his own vulnerability with his own struggles, his own commitment to community. Early on and not long after uh, the, the run that I told you about at the beginning of this talk, Patrick was willing to put our story on the stage of our church in a West Texas town that very much puts the red in redneck. He took a huge risk. And then as we grew in relationship and as he ministered to me, he faithfully listened to me when I challenged his language, when I called out his own prejudices and his own lack of understanding. And he called me out on occasion when I needed it. He listened to my ongoing struggles and my fears, like my fears of being a dad, wondering if I had what it took, especially my fears of being a dad to a boy. He promised, I'll help you in the areas where you need help. And then he asked me for help in the areas where I was stronger than he was. He took me at age 44 into a private room on our church campus when my son was just starting to play t-ball. And he gave me a baseball glove. And he, and at age 44, he taught me how to throw a ball. He taught me how to do the gator, to field a grounder, so that I could go home and teach those things to my son before his first t-ball practice. He wasn't afraid of my struggle, ever. And he led Stonegate Fellowship to a place of grace and fearlessness and a belief that the gospel could change any life. And that church today continues to be a refuge and a conduit of life change for many hurting people. And your church can be that too. Our churches are full of humble, committed, sincere Christ followers who are battling feelings and deep, deep desires that they did not ask for and they do not want. And the church should be the place where they can be honest about what they are struggling with, where they can receive both encouragement and challenge. And it should be the place where they discover the truth of who they really are, the truth of who God really is, and the truth of all that God has for them as they surrender their lives, including their sexuality, to Him. Be the church. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast for the latest episodes. For more information about Christianity and sexuality, including articles and videos, visit ERLC.com.